Branding is one of the most important aspects of any business, large or small, B2C or B2B. A compelling brand strategy gives you a major edge in increasingly competitive markets. A brand is a name, term, design, symbol, or any other feature that identifies your product or company as distinct from others. Brands are used in all aspects of business, from marketing to advertising to everything else. On today's episode, we chat with a leader in CBG food and beverage brands with a deep heritage in the wine business. Emma and I have an intimate discussion with another branding expert who has worked on some pretty impressive projects. And our tip of the week is branding on a budget. This is going to be a good one, folks, so make sure you listen to the end. I'm Michael Wangbickler, and it's time to hit the bottle. Welcome to Hit the Bottle Podcast, a practical guide to beverage marketing through the lens of strategy, technology, and leadership. From exploring the buyer journey to leveraging modern public relations, to how marketing automation is changing the way we engage with customers. Hit the Bottle goes above and beyond the ordinary to ask and answer the right questions. Each week we chat with industry experts, explore practical applications, and discuss the newest trends. All to provide you with the insights and strategies you need to create successful marketing programs. It's time to hit the bottle. Uh, I'm super excited to have on my next guest. He's the founder and managing partner of Sonoma Brands, a specialist growth equity firm exclusively dedicated to disruptive high-growth consumer brands. Uh, Their brands include Smash Mallow, Medley, Dang, and Vintage Wine Estates. He founded the firm in, in 2016 and leads all aspects of the firm's investment strategy and portfolio company pay management. So prior to launching the company, he was the founder and CEO of Crave Pure Foods, which became one of the fastest growing CBGs in the country. Crave was acquired by the Hershey Company in 2015. So please welcome to the show, John Sebastiani. Oh, thank you. So glad to be here, Michael. Yeah, I'm super, super happy to have you on. Uh, I've been wanting to talk to you about this stuff for a while now. So before we begin, would you share with the listeners how they might get get in contact with you? Absolutely. I think the best way is probably through the Sonoma Brands website, which uh, you can source at sonomabrands.com. And there's a link in there to... uh, reach me through Cinema Brands. And of course, we're, we're also a part of 13 companies now, but the most efficient way would be through cinemabrands.com. So uh, frankly, you hit a home run when you built the Crave brand and have been working on several more brands since then, um, since the acquisition of the Hershey Company. Uh, so what are some of the key factors you consider absolutely essential to building a, a good brand? Yeah, I think I mean you you noted that Crave was uh was quite a home run and you know my my journey that that took me to Crave actually started in the wine business and I was raised here in the Sonoma Valley as a part of the Sebastiani wine growing family. I'm a fourth generation member of it. So I I grew up in the wine world and the food world. Food as you know is so tied to wine in terms of how we enjoy it, how we teach it, how we pair with it. And so I, I really cut my teeth 
you know, in the entrepreneurial space, albeit in a larger family business, but I, I really gained a lot of insight around how to build a brand, how to market a brand, how to create consumer loyalty. And the wine business was this really interesting category. And I, I speak about consumer products in the form of categories because they're, they all behave very differently. And in the wine business, it's a very, very different category uh, as I jump to Crave here in a minute. In, in that, while it's a big category, it's, it's a $30 billion category, there are 14,000 wineries in the US. So one of the first things that we think about when we start a company or, or the probability of success in a startup is the category. And so for me, coming out of the wine business where it, we as a brand were competing against 14,000 other brands, I took some of that ruthless skill set in creating brand differentiation, sourcing consumers, maintaining relationships with those consumers that were different, and landed in a business crave that, you know, was, again, as you said, it was a home run in the end, but in the beginning, I had no idea. It was a, it was a leap of faith for me. Uh, I am an entrepreneur. I, I pride myself on on always wanting to remain in that nimble sort of mindset where I question the status quo. We're trying to break food categories or beverage categories. And in the space of jerky, I was training for a marathon. I was eating jerky here at this great butcher in Sonoma called Angelo's. And I it just was something didn't compute to me where I was eating this product for the protein and so many of the brands that were commercially available were full of sodium nitrate, were full of high fructose corn syrup. They didn't offer the premium positioning of the product. So I started Crave, again, pulling a lot of the learnings from the wine space in terms of how do you create romance? There's something magical about wine because it's a romantic industry. People travel from all over the world to want to come to wine country to touch and feel the history or the heritage of a family or what have you. And how do we grab some of that and apply it to, to meat snacks, which was really a category that was like in the gas stations and was for truck drivers and it was a gut stuffer. It was not anything premium or not anything that represented health and wellness. And so in terms of making it more glamorous, we created great packaging. We created a sourcing story where the ingredients were super clean. We focused on where the meats, whether it was beef or chicken or turkey or pork, where they were grown, uh, what cuts of the meat did the jerky come from? Um, we positioned the product as a health and fitness food. So rather than eat a Cliff Bar or Chobani Greek yogurt, if you're looking for protein, eat meat snacks because it's the natural source of protein that has less sugar, less carbohydrates. Um, what astounded me to get maybe specific about metrics is, you know, I built and sold Crave. I, I didn't, when I started it, it wasn't like I, I intended or thought that I was going to, you know, have this home run. And along the way, obviously, I could speak for more time and maybe we have time to get in there what's happening in the food business in America today. But because big food can't innovate anymore, 
I was amazed at the value that these startup businesses that become very mainstream businesses very quickly, how quickly this can all happen in the food space, where you're in a category, and in the jerky category, there were three competitors fighting for a $4 billion space. Smaller category than wine, but much, much, much less competitors. And I sold the company to Hershey for $240 million. I only offer that publicly available number up, just given the magnitude when we look at building a successful business in food, finding the right category plays a part in what defines a home run. So sorry for the long answer there, but that connects a little bit of wine also with Crave and maybe tease us up for the next question. No, absolutely. That was, that's a fantastic review. So, um, so what are some of the key marketing initiatives that you enlist to promote the brands that you're working on now? Yeah, the, the marketing initiatives really kind of dive into first and foremost, trying to understand the consumer's relationship to what they're eating or drinking. Because as consumers here in California, we may have a different relationship with food than folks do in Chicago or Des Moines, Iowa, or New York for that matter. And so the first initiative is, is are we addressing a functional, better for you, health and wellness angle? Uh, we see these massive trends taking place right now with big companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods that are disrupting the the uh, meat space with vegan-based burgers and sausages and chicken and so forth. So when I think about marketing initiatives, understanding the connectivity to the consumer, understanding the size of the category, the size of the prize, if you will, are we addressing a, an improvement from a health standpoint? Are we changing the usage occasion? Excuse me, usage occasion? Um, are we providing a better sourcing story. I'm an investor in a brand called Guayaquil, which is, uh, produces yerba mate, which is a fabulous caffeinated beverage that is full of antioxidants and minerals. Uh, this product is, competes directly with Red Bull and Monster and Rockstar. But how we think about marketing initiatives in a business like that is, the romance around this brand is it's a better for you product because the level of caffeination is, is natural from the tea leaf of the holly tree that's grown in South America. The grow, growing standards that we utilize in growing this product uh, uses fair farming standards. Uh, we are reforesting over 100,000 acres in South America. And so what separates us from the competition and kind of becomes a key part of our marketing initiative is providing messaging around better for you, providing messaging around that we are a good steward to the environment, both in our growing standards, both in the, the supplies, the packaging supplies that we use, creating as small of a carbon footprint that we can. These are all initiatives that are insanely authentic and real and today's consumer knows that. And the millennial generation and the Generation Z is, in fact, the millennial generation, when you look at household income and where the greatest growth of spending is occurring, 
in the millennial generation, it's on food and beverage. It, they spend more as a percentage now on food and beverage than they do on any other consumable. And Generation Z, the data shows that they spend more on food than they do on clothing. They would rather spend premium for a product that delivers a better for you platform that is sustainably produced, that behaves in a socio-responsible manner than they, than they would on just price point alone. So we're seeing the broad-based sweeping changes in food in America and in the world for that matter. And we think it's going to change the health nature of our country when we think about all the healthcare crisis that we're dealing with in America and, and primarily in America. Uh, not that they don't exist outside of America, but we, we are focused on, on our country. What we put in our bodies is the first remedy. So again, marketing initiatives have to involve a sense of romance, a connectivity to our consumer that touches many of these direct measures as well as indirect as they relate to the environment and the world that we live. So, so really what, you know, based on what you've just told me, you approach brand brand building in a way of, of really, it starts, it starts with the product and it starts with the values of the company and, and around that product. And then you layer on top of that, the, what the story is and, and then how to communicate that. So for you, it really does come down to, if I'm interpreting this right, it really comes down to what's the, what are the values of the company, of the brand, um, and how do you communicate those? Yeah, I think in, in whether we start a business, because here at Sonoma Brands, we start businesses, we, we call that incubate, we incubate them and we invest in them. So as I mentioned earlier, we, we now have 13 companies in our portfolio. Four of them we've launched ourselves, and then nine of them we've direct invested into. So we've deployed you know, almost $250 million of capital into these 13 companies. And you're absolutely right. One of the core tenets of our thesis, our investment strategy, is to understand a brand tenant on what it stands for in the, in the broader environmental consumer landscape. Of course, I can, I can choose any brand that we want to talk about and get very specific about the marketing strategy on how we compete with bigger brands, whether it's the David and Goliath analogy, where we think that as nimble-minded entrepreneurs, we can outmaneuver, outsmart, out-execute, out-innovate our bigger competitors because of the nimbleness and pace with which we can reach data and reach execution uh, by removing a lot of the bureaucratic red tape that exists in larger companies. And our strategy is, of course, we get these companies to a certain level, and that's when they're ready to be sold to a larger organization. So uh, one of the, speaking of one of the companies that you invest in, one of them is Vintage Wine Estates, um, which is, uh, I I take personal satisfaction in because uh, it, it includes uh, Vianza as a brand and that's where you started. So um, what are your, if you can share some of your uh, philosophies, vision plans for uh, vintage wine estates as you, as you go forward? Yeah, I, I was so 
so pleasantly honored. And, and I, as you can imagine, it, it's sort of a, a full circle for me in my career because, as you pointed out, that's where I cut my teeth first when I graduated from college at Vianza. I spent 13 years there. My blood, sweat, and tears are on the property, on the walls. It was very much a family business. I worked with my mom and my dad, my brother, and you know we, we built that from nothing uh, to a fairly successful winery. And it pioneered direct-to-consumer before direct-to-consumer even existed. You know, Amazon hadn't even been started. There was, you know, we, we, I studied a business called Harry and David up in Oregon to really design the first wine club. If you can imagine, we were really the first wine club in existence. And so I cut my teeth there. And, and when we sold that winery, it was like a part of, part of me uh, died and uh, a very emotional uh, in terms of my family uh, selling it, my family kind of breaking each other apart because of it. It was very difficult. And, and the beauty of that was, of course, I started Crave after that, and that changed my life uh, in such a meaningful way. But to now have Sonoma Brands and then invest into VWE, which owns Vianza, and I'm Pat Rooney, the CEO of EWE, his partner, I sit on the board with him at EWE headquarters, but I have a direct management at Vianza where it's a carve out of the VWE, you know, portfolio where we, we have total management control of that and I think ultimately hope to keep it in our family in perpetuity. Um, it's a very emotional uh, reality. And, and one, as an entrepreneur, um, I love to talk about to other fellow entrepreneurs. So thank you for allowing me a few minutes to even say that. In terms of, of what are we going to do strategically, I feel that the wine industry has celebrated heritage um, for 30, 40, 50 years. And that's a very magical part of the wine industry. Is It's one of the few consumer industries that celebrates heritage. Maybe the Ferrari family can celebrate its heritage and the older cars that are grow in value over time. But as a consumable, you think about wine compared to beer or compared to jerky or dairy or whatever, it's a very, very different industry. But as I return and think about what's missing in the wine business, it's a little stale because you now have too many wineries telling the same story. And so our strategy as we think about our return to Vianza, primarily as well as what I'm helping VWE think through is innovation. How can we reintroduce wine to the younger consumer because millennial and Gen Z, not only are they drinking less alcohol, uh, but when they do drink alcohol, they want lower alcohol levels. So clearly we're seeing the explosion of White Claw out there, this amazing out of nowhere uh, hard seltzer that's taken the market by storm. So the consumer base is looking for innovation. As I look to Beyonce, how can we both celebrate the four generations of winemaking family that brought Beyonce to life, but at the same time begin to focus on the future in a way that better represents innovation. So for an example, what we will be launching uh, this winter uh, after a summer test is a hard kombucha. So we have blended live probiotic kombucha 
with vineyard designate varietals like Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc to create a hard kombucha. And we think that it offers a premium experience. There's a health and wellness component to it, given the probiotic nature of kombucha, as well as a little bit more of the mystique of using a, a varietal-based alcohol to blend with it. And that's something very new to the wine industry and, and experientially to Vianza. Uh, furthermore, at Vianza, we're, we're hosting a lot of food-related events uh, within our portfolio companies. So whether it's Smash Mallow that has a roasting station outdoors or it's Peckish that has, Peckish is a snackable hard-boiled egg that's featured inside. All of our portfolio of brands use Vianza as a platform to educate, to teach, and it becomes a center of innovation, a center for experimentation, where consumers have an opportunity to taste and sample in ways that they haven't before. That's fantastic. You know, just leveraging cross brands like that uh, is something that is definitely very, very unique to where you sit right now. I don't think anybody else can do that at this point. Yep. Agreed. That's great. So do you have any advice for the wine industry as a whole? You know, what do they need to improve most, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. It's a big question. And it's one that I, I uh, w- before I even try to answer it, would note that there's a lot of very smart people in the wine industry. And, and I think it's a question that a lot of people are, are asking themselves as we, as we understand what's happening with the generational shift of how you know, the younger generation is consuming alcohol or what are they looking for? I I think in my thoughts, the wine industry has to embrace change more than it, than it ever has. And while we see the emergence of wine in a can, uh, wine in a box, wine in test tubes that are shipped direct to consumer that represent a one ounce pour that you can creatively taste before you buy. Um, There are ways that the wine tasting room is being brought to your doorstep through experiential and creative direct-to-consumer models. So I love the digitization of how to bring wine to life in your home, how to recreate wine country in your communities through outreach. Um, I think the wine brands that are relying on the three-tiered system the way that it's been for decades is is old school and it's the hourglass syndrome that still exists where if you're not a big winery with a large portfolio it's very difficult to get the attention of a distributor so i think the digital wave that has been sweeping through all consumer products in terms of creating content online If you have a wine club, phenomenal. Bring to life your brand creatively through the digital channel by video content. Teach them, educate them, entertain them through digital measures. Because if you're in Sonoma Valley and you have a wine club member in Florida, you know, how do you maintain that relationship that's authentic, that's real? when they may not come back to Napa or Sonoma for two or three years. And simply sending them an email or a printed newsletter isn't as creative as creating a YouTube channel where wine club members can access 
and you can create you know an education channel around monthly seasonal recipe development or entertaining suggestions creating romance creating content and and so that's just one sort of path of concepts but i think embracing change embracing innovation uh being willing to to break a bit of heritage in order to meet the consumer demands of of what this new generation and future generations are looking for that's all fantastic advice and something that we've covered on this podcast uh pretty extensively throughout the throughout the various episodes so uh before we wrap up here is there anything else you want to share about sonoma brands yeah we're here in sonoma right off the plaza and we have a small retail center that uh we make open uh, five days a week during the week where anybody that's interested to, to come and see the brands and hear more about what we're doing. And if, if uh, anybody has a, an, an idea that they'd like some input on, we very much want to support the entrepreneurial ecosystem. It's important to us, whether we invest or not, to be available for feedback, for answering any questions. So whether you reach us online or, or swing by our place here in Sonoma, um, our doors are open to you. Hey, this has been a great interview. I really appreciate you being on and um, sharing your insights. I think that they've been very valuable and that my listeners should absolutely listen to this podcast probably multiple times because um, there's some really great insights in here. So John Sebastiani, thanks a ton for being on the show. Michael, thank you for having me. She's the director of marketing at Conspire, a branding and marketing agency based in Columbus, Ohio. She works with clients to define their brand and the experiences they provide throughout the consumer and employee journey to encourage brand loyalty. Throughout her career, she's provided experienced strategy for the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium, the Ohio State University, Nationwide Children's Hospital, UVU, DSW, and Best Western International. In her spare time, she enjoys drinking red wine from a coffee mug, all that to avoid judgmental looks from other parents while her young children play at the park. Welcome to the show, Juliana Kudemeyer. Thanks, guys. I'm glad to be here. Um, we're glad to have you. She's the Woody to my buzz, the burger to my fries. VP of Client Relations at Balzac Communications and Marketing, and an avid cat lover, it's Emma Criswell. <laughs> Hello. My cat is currently uh, annoyed with me because of the time change. He thinks it's time for dinner. Aha. <laughs> uh -huh. Have you locked him out of the room? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. So if we hear a bunch of racket, it's him jumping onto the keyboard, wanting, wanting to... Uh, have his dinner. Okay. So, um, thanks for being on the show, uh, today. And we're going to be discussing, uh, how to build a brand and how to build an effective brand. So, um, Juliana, since, uh, you're new to our, our little podcasting community, as well as probably to the world of the wine business, um, beverage business, 
Um, why I mean, you... I've been drinking wine for a while now, <laughs> but new, new to the, I guess, the business end of it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, why don't you go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about um, some of the some of the key ingredients um, that that you've uh, really found are necessary to building a brand. <sighs> Uh, having a good, yeah, <laughs> having a good story. So whenever we, uh, we actually have a few clients right now that we're working on from the ground up, um, building their brand, which includes everything from what we call a brand anthem, which is the thing that, um, kind of motivates people to even look your way. Like if somebody heard the story of your brand, what would that be? And what would actually interest me enough to continue on, um, past just, hearing your name um and then so we we even work with like naming brands uh so you know defining their story and then giving them i guess different values that they want their brand to encompass and then from those values we name them (laughs) um and then build a story that fits within those values um essentially we want to we want to know what the story your brand is trying to tell people. Um, cause that's how people are initially going to connect to it. Um, I want something that is like me and has the same values as me. Um, that's one of those birds of a feather flock together kind of thing. Um, how do you tease that out of a brand? I know we have a hard time sometimes <laughs> getting, what are your values? Uh, Who are you? Send me a mood so board. For me, for me, yeah. For me personally, a lot of times it's just sitting down and having coffee with them. Um, our most recent client that we delivered like naming platforms to and probably about 20 potential names for her brand. I got most of my good ideas from sitting down and just talking to her about her life um, and learning who she was and what she wants out of her business. I don't know what it is about me, but people, I think it like, I don't know if it's, I was a bartender before or what, but people like to just talk to me and tell me things that they probably shouldn't tell me. Um, but that it leads to really good um, insights into what like their story might end up being. Um, people just love to overshare. They do. People love talking about themselves. <laughs> um, so you just have to know how to re- ask the right question at the right time. And you usually can't get them to shut up. <laughs> so... <laughs> So then I take those insights and I leverage them to, I guess, play to their weaknesses. Um, this one, uh, the client that I had mentioned, her, she was really close to her father and her father passed and he, he ran a business of laying bricks um, and uh, she really liked Disney. So like any of the business things that I sent her away had a Disney movie quote and some of the names... Um, we gave her for a potential brand uh, had to do with bricks or stones or houses or columns and that sort of thing in that same realm. So once, uh, so once you have the story down, then what? What's next in the process? Depending on what they do and who they are, um, good creative that tells that story. Because people digest stuff immediately with their eyes first. Um, obviously unless you're on a podcast and then it's your ears. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, good imagery that helps support it and gives, uh, kind of like a new, 
elevation of what that story is. Um, for the food industry, people definitely eat with their eyes. Um, you want good photography and people are more likely to actually buy food if it looks good and if they see a picture of it. That's why menus always have like pictures of their top dishes and they might be the top dishes because there's a picture of them. Um, so then, you know, so, so yeah, solidifying that brand through imagery. So knowing what the logo is, what the colors are, uh, if any of you guys ever did design and you had to do sit through a color theory class in college. Um, so like this blue means trust and it makes people feel, you know, like that sort of thing, like thinking that stuff out um, to help uh, match with the brand and what the values they're trying to um, emote to the world. Yeah. And in the wine space, there's, there's further markers of quality. You know, so when we're when we're building a brand, it is uh, what kind of paper stock are they using on their labels? Uh, you know, when they are um, when people visit their tasting room, what kind of message does it convey regarding what the wine is? Right. Yeah, thinking through the brand experience and the elements that are specific to the brand um, add to that overall what people uh, believe the brand to be. Um, whether it's a cheap chair that breaks and isn't very comfortable to sit in or if it's a nice luxury leather lounger of some sort. Um, all that stuff kind of plays into the brand and when we're thinking through what a brand is and what what a client's brand should be, we often like play games like, okay, well, if I was a brand, this is what I'd have in my house. And because all that stuff says a lot about who you are. So have you had any brands that kind of want to flip themselves from either end of the spectrum? You know, for instance, it is that cheap chair, but they want to have the brand cachet of the leather chair. Have you ever been able to successfully <laughs> right, yeah. navigate that for somebody? <laughs> we are working on that with a client right now. Um, and it doesn't help that they're cheap to begin with. <laughs> so, so it's like, well, if you want to come off as a higher end, you kind of have to, you know, spend some money to actually be higher end. Um, so uh, with this particular client, we introduced black um, to their color palette because uh, black is seen as classy. So we in introduced black. We've added some natural, like polished wood. Um, to some of the elements in their restaurant. Um, we convinced them to stop using plastic mesh uh, trays uh, for their main dish. Um, and now they serve it in a nice little like corrugated kind of taco stand that's metal. Um, we're getting there. It's slow baby steps, but. How much? Do you know about the wine business, Julian? Uh, a little bit, probably more than most. Um, so okay, in so college, here's, so, yeah, okay, so here's the question. Here's the question. Yes. So what do you think wineries can do better 
when it comes to their branding? Uh, good question. For I was actually thinking of marketing stuff um, before I walked in here. I wasn't even thinking about branding stuff. Um, I always go back to my mother-in-law who just picks wines based on their labels. <laughs> so, so for anybody who doesn't think a label matters, <laughs> think again. Because there's a, a probably 10 to 1 uh, just random women walking around the store like, oh, this is a pretty label. I'm going to buy this without even reading anything else. They probably don't even know what type of wine it is. Just the label is pretty. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. When I was in college, <laughs> I did a focus group at a wine shop where I brought in 10 or 12 different labels and everybody picked the one, the rooster. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it, that's a very important point. You know, the packaging is is often the first contact that a winery will have with a consumer. Mm -hmm. It is the first thing they see. And frankly, a lot of wineries don't take that into consideration and they produce a wine label that basically looks like every other wine label out there. Right. So the wine labels that do stand out, the ones that are different, you know, I'll give you an example like 19 Crimes. 19 Crimes has an interesting label, plus they have the uh, AR with the label and it, that stands out. And so it's become a very popular brand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to your point, uh, Emma, you know, the Rex Goliath was a really interesting label back in the day. Yep. And therefore, you know, it became a popular brand based on packaging. Now, I love that you wine- knew what that was too. I didn't say what brand it was. I said it was the one with the rooster. I knew what Strong brand branding, it was right? too. I remember picking, <laughs> in college, I worked at a, wine distributor and I had to pick a lot of bottles and that was one of them. Yeah. So absolutely. The, the packaging has, has a huge impact on, on a wine brand. Now that does assume that it's a brand that is intended for grocery store or wine store and may not necessarily mean that that's a brand intended for a smaller producer with a more intimate experience and um, limited supply, right? So like a a higher end luxury product is going to have different labeling issues and opportunities than somebody who is a grocery store brand. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Like, right. Yeah. Last week, or I guess it was earlier this week, Mike and I were in New York for an event that we were putting on, and we went into a wine store, and they had you know, all of these sort of everyday up to $60, $75 wines in the main store. And then you go off to the left, and there's a room called the cellar that had the more expensive bottles. It had a dedicated staff member in that space. It had special music they were playing to the wines. It was like being in a completely different space. Yeah. And, um, you know, to your, to your, to both of your points is that, that is that the experience is part of the brand, right? You know, we're not just talking about what the story is and what the uh, creative is. It also, determines what the experience is that 
that end user is going to have with the brand, whether that's in a store, at the tasting room, in a restaurant. So the experience is all part of that brand as well. Going back to the labels, um, one of my biggest pet peeves is when wines don't describe what what they should taste like or what they could pair with, um, because that'll be like the second thing I look at because I'm usually buying wine for something specific or I have a, a specific craving for something jammier or something a little bit spicier. And I'll grab a bottle thinking, oh yeah, this it's it should taste like all the other ones, right? And then get home and I'm like, yep, this isn't what I was expecting it to be. Or like, this is way spicier than it sh- I feel like it should be. And so having the descriptions of the wine is definitely an added bonus there when it comes to branding. You know, that's a really interesting point because I, you know, that's as somebody who's been working in wine for quite a long time, I have a very, um, love hate relationship with back labels because part of me says that back label copy is too long and, uh, it doesn't offer much value, but then you come along and say that having that more information on the, on the back label would, would, would be really helpful. And I also think that that's also where um, we're going to start seeing more AR uh, in the future in that um, we're, you know, we'll, we're able to have a lot more information from the label um, other than just a few you know, sentences on the back. Well, that's also a good place for them. Like if the branding's on the front, they could use the back to leverage and tell more of the story of the brand. Um, cause I'll turn it around immediately to see if it has a description of what it is. And if they also have like family owned since 1908 or some, some historic value or some like we're organic and, uh, partner with local schools to educate kids on the olden days of wineries or something like that. Just that little nugget can help push me over the edge of, yeah, I'm going to support that wine. I'll spend the extra five bucks. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) See, this is why it's so interesting to have people who aren't also in this industry on the podcast because you provide, you know, perspectives that I can clearly (laughs) see Mike and I have not thought about. (laughs) Or we've discounted, right? Like if like, there's wait one, a minute. if you think about it too, that back label, there's so much more stuff that you can leverage on there. Like if if the winery is also like really big in the music for that experience, like hey, this wine is really good with steak, hamburgers, and smooth jazz. We recommend this artist. Do you know what I mean? Like they could make <laughs> yeah, it total, make total, it yeah. that experience. Yeah. That'd be really yeah, fun. It's really, it, yeah. So there you go. You've just kind of undone, undone some of the thinking that I've had over the last uh, several years regarding back labels. Well, that's because they all look so. the same. Like if you turned all the wine bottles around, some will have a description. Some will just say like, don't consume while pregnant or operating motor vehicles. Well, well they have to have that. <laughs> Which that's, I understand. But yeah. they even have if to they have look that. to the beer industry, so Down East is a cider Um out of Boston or some East coast city and their can design. I absolutely love it. Like, so it's a cider and it's unfiltered and they want you to, they purposely put 
text upside down so that you have to turn it over to read it. And the text actually says, hey, this is unfiltered. So you actually have to shake it very slightly to mix up that sediment. You're, all you have to do is flip it back over and it's ready to drink. So it creates that, ex- yeah. So it, oh, that's brilliant. in more uh, poetic words anyways, I didn't do it justice. But so, so that it creates that experience and it's just very, I don't know. I thought it was a very ingenious way to get somebody to do the action that you want them to do. That's really interesting. And that's actually, uh, that's actually a, a, a nice note to Sean here. So we, um, we're out of time, unfortunately. Um, it's been a really cool discussion, uh, brief, um, we've really only scratched the surface, but, uh, I think that, um, it gives people a good primer as to, to what to think about when they're, um, working with, uh, with whether an established brand or a new brand, what they can do. So Juliana, thanks a bunch for, for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thanks guys. It's been fun. I could probably talk about this all day if you needed me to. <laughs> so could we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, have, we'll to, have you back when we do a deeper yeah. dive. Well, you we'll know, we've talking about um, doing a, uh, <laughs> uh, a, a, a kind of seminar thing in the future. Hey guys, it's Emma here with your tip of the week. On today's show, our main topic was brand building, and it's important to consider how to do this without breaking the bank. In this week's tip, we'll show you three ways to create brand loyalty on a budget. The first step is to pinpoint your mission, values, and goals. Creating an ironclad mission statement allows you and your business to communicate in a clear and effective way and allows you to know that each dollar is being spent in a way that aligns with your brand and its goals. Another cost-effective option to share your message is social media, and especially Instagram. The data shows that Instagram is the platform of social media, and it doesn't appear to be changing anytime soon. What's more, a full 60%, 6-0, of consumers have made a purchase after viewing an Instagram ad, and bonus, the cost to run a story ad on the platform is less than half the price it costs to run the same ad on Facebook. Finally, get your expertise out there. Engaging with like-minded audiences, business, and brands on social media will bolster your visibility and know-how in the field. Another great way to gain recognition without using up any cash flow is to be on a podcast. If you're a marketer for your brand, I happen to know the host of a pretty solid beverage marketing podcast that you could contact. (laughs) I hope you found this week's tip successful and useful. Until next time, keep in touch with us on all the socials. This has been Hit the Bottle, a production of Balzac Communications and Marketing. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. If you like this podcast, please rate and review the show. Thank you for joining us. Until next week.